You're listening to the Southern Spines Podcast. I'm Allison Law. It's February 2013, and there are so many wonderful books making their debut this month. One book that's available now in paperback is The Lost Saints of Tennessee by Amy Franklin Willis. This is the story of three generations of a working-class Southern family. Amy can relate because she's an eighth-generation Southerner who now lives in the San Francisco Bay Area of California. In the following interview, we talked about how she was able to connect to her Southern roots through the writing of Lost Saints, how she walked that fine line between fact, fiction, and family, and food, how her great Aunt Beth's classic layer cake added layers to her main character, Ezekiel Cooper. But first, I asked Amy why she decided to tell the story from the voices of Zeke and his mother, Lillian. Their recollections are what drive the action between the 1940s and the 1980s as Zeke evolves from anointed son to unhinged middle-aged man. I'm, I'm curious, did you have it all structured ahead of time, or at what point did you decide that you were going to, A, go between different narrators, and B, also go back and forth between 1985, 1959, 1960? When I first draft, started drafting the book, which was in 2002, um, I didn't know a lot about the story other than I knew there was this character, Ezekiel, who at age 42 was still in his hometown and literally was living in the converted shed behind his mother's house in his hometown. And he knew that he had this whole history, that he'd been the kind of the um, one of the five children that was um, blessed by his mother and deigned to be the one that was going to go on and, and be out of the little um, tiny rural town in Tennessee. And that first draft was kind of an exploration, and that was all I knew. So I, I knew that, that there, he'd been this you know, really smart kid, which was very much inspired by a dad, my, my own college experience growing up in Tennessee. Um, and my dad got out and he first his family to graduate from college and became a professor and traveled the world. I knew that Zeke's story did not end that way, that he, for you know some important reason, I was hoping, um, was still in Clayton, Tennessee. So when I wrote that first draft, I was just trying to get the particulars of the why. Why did this happen? Um, why, when you meet him in the story, is he completely broken down? And it's because his twin brother has drowned. And for him, which happens when they're in their early 30s, that's a devastating loss, which Ezekiel cannot move past. So you kind of meet him in the story nearing the 10th anniversary of that death of his twin brother. And, and he's just lost his wife in the process. She's divorced him. He's distanced from his two daughters who are um, in the teeth. And he's trying, he's trying to figure out what to do because he knows he can't keep doing what he has been doing. He's working on the local um, of the elevator plants in town, and um, he decides he has to get out. So that's kind of the complicated crisis that gets them, or the inciting crisis that gets them on the road. He just leaves Clayton without knowing where he's going. And so when that story started getting momentum, 
I knew that I wanted, I had all of these childhood stories of Zeke and Carter together, and some of them were, were taken directly from my father's case that he would tell me growing up. I really romanticized my dad's childhood, which was in the 1940s and because he would tell me these amazing stories about you know, going out into the woods right behind his house, and he and his brother Jimmy would you know, go through the creeks, you know, one day the water moccasin almost ate his brother, and, and all of these stories about a kind of life that I had very little experience with. I grew up dominantly in um, Oklahoma. My parents were from Birmingham, eighth generation southerner on my mom's side, and my parents separated that I moved to Oklahoma. So, I was growing up in a mid-sized city, had no idea what kind of country life really was like, and his stories just captivated me. So there were a lot of those stories in the initial draft, and became here as Zeke's mid midlife coming of age story became the predominant story that I know when I'm reading stories that go back and forth in time, I get frustrated if I'm back in time too much because I think it's just kind of a human reader thing that we want to know what's happening now. What What is happening to that character now? Um, so I was very conscious of that. You know, I revised it for seven years before I got an agent. So I kept kind of going back to try to really get that pacing down of giving you enough to, to make you want to keep going with me and find out if this guy, you know, is he going to find a new life? Because um, he's just broken down when we meet him. Um, the only you know constant relationship he has is with his dog Tucker. That's about the only relationship he can maintain successfully um, when we meet him in the story. So the narration of the mother who narrates the middle section I thought was very important because you meet three generations of the Cooper family in the story and you meet um, Lillian, whose mother, then Zeke, who's our main character, and you get to know Zeke's daughter, so they're the third generation. Zeke is, like all of us are, a biased narrator. He's telling you his side of what happened when the boys were little. He's telling you his side of what his mother did, the sin that Zeke cannot forgive his mother for, that he has not spoken to her for 25 years because of the sin he believes she committed against his brother, Carter. So I felt like you got to hear from the mother, right? You know, any family story, mom's got a bird's eye view of a lot. Uh, she has her own biases, of course, but she was a very um, compelling voice for me. So I felt almost like you were on a date with you know, that you were going to meet him. You know, you're on a first date, and the first section, there's three sections of the book, you're getting to know him. Hopefully, you know, you're seeing some redeeming qualities in him. Um, and then I want you to meet his parents. So I want you to meet his mother next. Um, so I bring her in to kind of give you her side of a lot of the events that you hear about in part one. And then to bring it back to Zeke's perspective, because he's the hero of the story in the third section. And as I recall, there is, you know, Clayton, Tennessee is a fictional town that you've created, but I believe it's based on Pocahontas, Tennessee. Is that right? It is. You, yes, you did it. I know. If I, if I had used Pocahontas, I have a feeling my editor would have just said, that's just not a real town name. But There's no way. It is. It is. <laughs> well, 
you know, we all know the Native American history and tradition in the South is, is huge. It's a little bit forgotten these days, but it was certainly um, my ancestors were showing up late to the party, I think, um, there. So Pocahontas is my dad's hometown. He was at least third generation in Pocahontas. Um, I think he was technically born across the border in Alabama. And that town became very important to me growing up because I would travel back there every Christmas and summers. And I really got to know his mother, my maternal grandmother, very, very well. And I think I am an only child and I was growing up you know, with a single mom, basically. And um, I had a very quiet household, um, two of us and two relatively quiet dogs, presently. And when I would come back to Pocahontas, I had that sense of family, of extended family, which I, we were not too far over, but we were in Oklahoma, which was far enough not to see cousins or aunts or uncles on anything on you know, like a regular basis. So for me growing up, to be able to walk the same streets my dad walked when he was a kid, to sit in my grandmother's kitchen, you know, which is very, just like mine, had a washer and dryer, you know, right there behind the table, um, was just this way of connecting to something that I really felt, I think, a bit of a lack, that felt like I was growing up in a little bit of a vacuum, um, not having that connection on a regular basis. So bringing that story, bringing Pocahontas, um, it was just a joy to be writing about it and to have to create a fictional world just a little bit because um, a lake is where the boys spend you know, half their growing up years fishing is where a critical scene in the book takes place. And I, I couldn't do that if I was true to the geography of Pocahontas. So that was the primary reason we used it. I created the fictional lake Tennessee. But it, you know, I give you clues in the book, and I've had people. There's a um, if you are from Pocahontas Facebook group that I've been active on uh, recently, and they're terrific. Everybody knows everybody, of course, because there's about 250 people of course. in the town, right? And everybody knows everybody's ancestors. You know, they know. Oh, I knew your grandmother and my cousin. And um, so they've asked. I've had people send me questions and go, "Is Maybe really in Middleton?" And it's Tolliver Bolliver, and, and they say, yeah, actually, it is. <laughs> it is. But I wanted to make it easy enough for you to, if you knew the area at all, I give you the right counties that you could find it. So it's kind of like a little Easter egg hunt for the locals. <laughs> I think so, yeah. Yeah, I didn't get terribly creative with the name, so people... And then the cafe where the kind of opening scene Ezekiel's about to go into his 20th high school reunion. And I literally, you know, what's interesting is I didn't grow up there. I went back, you know, what, 15, 16 times, you know, maybe 30 times in my growing up years. And there are things that ended up in the book that I didn't consciously know about the place. But people who did grow up there have said, oh, that, that cafe must be so-and-so's cafe. And, and it's interesting sometimes when you're, when you're writing fiction, but it is inspired by a true place. I think you can end up with moments that are very, that kind of cross. And one of the things happened with my um, my aunt reading this story, and I gave her, I think, 
I think the book had been bought by the publisher, but we weren't, um, you know, we were still a ways out from actual publication. And I sent it to her, and um, I was very worried. I wanted her to like it. Um, and she sent me an email and said she read the whole thing, you know, at the beach over weekends and loved it. And I said, oh, that's so great. I'm so happy. And her mother was the inspiration for her cousin Jordan's story. Zeke ends up kind of speaking roughly. He gets out of Clayton and ends up in Virginia at Cousin Georgia's farm. Um, my memo was definitely who I, I had in mind. And um, I found out later, though, after my aunt and I had kind of corresponded about her reaction, but through my father, she had been very worried that people would think that the character of who is the mother in the story, which you know, if you were thinking my dad was Zeke, then it would be logical to think that Lillian was my grandmother, was in fact saying that my grandmother had had an affair and, you know, had done all of these things. And um, that, of course, is not the case. And he um, told me about it. And I thought it was so funny in this classic way families communicate. You know, she wanted to just share how excited she was and that she liked it with me and then turned to her brother, you know, and said, wait a minute, you People are going to think our mother, and turns out there had been a rumor about something like that with my grandmother. Not true, but there had been some scuttlebutt, so which I did not have any knowledge of. So that's another, you know, kind of moment where it's strange in fiction sometimes. Well, those are definitely themes, themes for lack of a better word, that come up in the Lost Saints of Tennessee. You know, you have first of all how really small a small town can be. And then also the, the whole family dynamic, which person knows which secret or which person found out about um, something unexpectedly and has been kind of holding it inside all these years. Almost every novel written is about families in one way or the other. And so you have this large family, you know, relatively large, five children, and um, while the character of Ezekiel was inspired by my dad, you know, I shared it, it very quickly diverts. You know, my dad went to college, you know, became a professor. Zeke is, uh, went one semester to the University of Virginia, a couple scholarship, and then events with his brother draw him back home to Clayton, and he um, never completes his degree. So those differences were set up pretty, pretty quickly for me. And the character of Lillian, though, who is the mother, I, I didn't know consciously while I was writing her that um, she was really, for me, an inspiration, I think, of my maternal grandmother. My mother's one of seven children, and my grandmother got pregnant at 15 and got married and had seven children by her mid-20s. And um, I was, did not have the same relationship with her that I did with my maternal grandmother. Um, was able to graduate from high school and um, didn't marry so young or pregnant. And I, I really was trying to understand because by the time I got to my grandmother on the mother's side, she, she was pretty removed and um, a little childlike in her in kind of her demeanor and um, a little strange, quite frankly. And she would do very sweet things for me. 
but I think I really wanted to try to imagine what it would be like to have been living in the 1940s and, um, you know, to end up at 15. My oldest daughter is 14. It's just hard to imagine that you're set on that path. You're a native of Alabama, but you spent a lot of time in Oklahoma growing up, and now you're... Um, Shall I call you an expatriate, an expat living over on the West Coast? Uh, I've been a displaced southerner out here. Yes. And how long have you been living there? I, I What brought me originally to California was a college. So I went to Mills College, which is a small liberal arts college in Oakland, California. And um, I ended up falling in love with a native San Franciscan. And so uh, there's... This was pretty much the only place I knew we would settle, and she's part of a large Italian family that, you know, third cousins are within you know, 15 miles of everybody out here. So it's a great place for my kids to grow up, getting access to that kind of relative constant family contact, which I kind of missed, I think, um, growing up the way I did. But I think one of the reasons I started writing Lost Saints was because I was missing the South. and. I don't know that you could go at least in the 48 contiguous states from a more different place than um, rural Tennessee or Mississippi. A lot of my, my relatives live in Mississippi now to the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. It is so culturally different. And uh, when I was a college student, I loved that. And I had used to come out here with my dad for conferences. He would bring me along and I wanted to go to Stanford, you know, when I was 12 or something, and he really encouraged kind of a world perspective in me, I think, and, which was great. Um, but as I got older, and I think uh, lost my grandmother in my 20s, and then um, began to really miss those connections to my family. My father moved away from the South. He's um, now outside New York City. My mother retired to the Bay Area to be near me and her grandchildren about 10 years ago as well. So there was no real firm ties anymore to that part of the world. So I do feel like that longing for a place that had been so meaningful to me and living in a place where I can't get self-rising corn mill. I mean, you, you cannot get it. Nobody knows what it is out here. One of my she said from Kentucky sent me one for Christmas yeah, and I'm almost out I just emailed her and said where did I get this because you just can't find it cornbread up here they feel the way Texans feel about hair they think it's the bigger the better so, so oh no you know it's like this tall and I grew up with country cornbread on my dad's side, which was that really thin, thin cake in the you know in the skillet, no sugar. It's just self-rising cornmeal and buttermilk, and uh, and an egg. And so good, so good. My mom, she grew up in Birmingham in the city, so she she does a little bigger cake and it has a little bit of sugar in it, which of course my kids prefer. Um, but I missed that stuff, and and I missed. In particular, and I think this is probably a common experience for anyone who grows up where there's a distinct accent in a place. You know, any time I would meet anybody out here who had the slightest bill, you know, slightest little bit of lilt 
in our voice, I would kind of attack them and be like, where are you from? Um, because what's interesting about the Bay Area, because we have people from literally all over the world that live here, from India and from, you know, Taiwan and, and, and everywhere else in between, um, there's no regional accent. You just, you don't have one. I think because the, um, the, the number of languages spoken is so diverse, there's just no regional um, twitches of any kind that I can, um, I'm no expert, but that I've heard. So I think as I turned 30 and began really thinking about my roots and wanting to explore those through the book, um, it made me realize that I had kind of cut off a part of myself, really, and kind of morphed into a coffee drinking, you know, yoga doing California. Um, and when I went back to the South for book tour last year, I just it just made me realize how much I loved the voices, just the accents, and and um, a really genuine openness and and friendliness for the most part that. Uh, I just was so lucky. People were so kind to me. The booksellers and the independents out there just really, you know, threw their arms wide open and um, had me sit on the back porch and have a cocktail and swing on the swing and talk about my book. You know, it doesn't really get any better than that. So I think this process, this past year of having the book come out, being able to go back to the South, did this book allowed me to reconnect with all those parts of myself that I think I had just kind of perhaps some kind of squashed on purpose, but also just kind of laid dormant for a long time. So I'm very grateful that I've reconnected with that and inspired me to bring my daughter to the South for the first time for a family reunion. It's the first time we have ever had a family reunion in 30 years. Um, and I'm baking more, which is a big thing. Um, my mother was a baker, still is a big baker, and um, I loved being able to do that and share it a little bit on Facebook, you know, with some of the recipes from um, the story. Hummingbird cake is the main character's favorite cake, and um, I'll never forget being a kid and going into my great aunt Beth's kitchen for the first time seeing that you know, with your classic multi-layered southern cake and it was so impressive it was so big I mean, just as a kid I just wanted to put my whole face in the thing and just eat it that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book is that you really did there were two things for me that really came out in your writing it there was such an appreciation, first of all, for the landscape. Um, you really went into some some beautiful imagery, and I could even hear the whippoorwills that you kept mentioning. And then the other thing, of course, is going back to your baking roots, um, talking about the different um, southern foods. Um, I know that there's a scene, what was it, Carter, whose favorite treat was to, to eat cornbread and buttermilk. I mean, that was huge for my grandfather, who was a depression baby. Every night he would have this huge meal and then, uh, you know, creep back into the kitchen at 8 o'clock at night for his, you know, cornbread and buttermilk. It's hard to imagine. That. I never personally have enjoyed that particular concoction, but I love the smell of buttermilk. I always force, whenever I'm 
make it <laughs> at home now. I, I open the buttermilk carton, shove it under my daughter's nose, smell this. This is this buttermilk because it just reminds me. For me, you know, it just connects me back to my grandmother. Food is such a powerful way to do that. My grandmother, my um, mother, and I would drive. My mother maintained a very close relationship with my um, paternal grandmother even after she and my father divorced. And so we would drive from Oklahoma. I think it was like a nine-hour drive, something. And this was long before cell phones, so we would call when we left the house and tell her estimated time of arrival. But somehow she would magically know right when we were about to come. And we would walk in the house, and there would be a full ham in the oven and a freshly baked, you know, cake of cornbread, a skillet full of cornbread. And those smells, you know what a house smells like, you know, that got that cooking, was just really powerful and I teach uh, writing with uh, everything from first graders up to 12th graders and and beyond and, and adult and um, the kids I teach I particularly tell them that smell is really underused I think as a sense when we're describing and writing and for me it's one of the most powerful the smell in the south uh, we went in August to go back to my family reunion and so it, it rained you know pretty much every other day, if not every day, while we were there, and just the smell of the South, you know, after a rain, summer rainstorm is so, it just conjures all sorts of things. I loved it, and I would make my kids go out, because in the Bay Area, it doesn't rain in the summer. It's a drought conditions. It's brown. Everything's brown. And so they just, it was wonderful to see my daughters kind of go to this completely foreign for them and see how it really mean here, you know, that there are really different parts of the world that um, have such beauty, and I'm glad that you appreciated the description uh, of it, because I really do feel like Tennessee is really one of the most gorgeous states. Uh, I just love it so much, and um, I was talking to my mother, you know, when the amazing book, The Help, got made into the movie, and my mother and I were talking about it, right. and I love the movie. I love the book. And I, I thought that the movie was really beautiful as well and kind of further, you know, exploration of views in the book. And um, there was some movie critique, you know, a film critic was reviewing the help and they were saying something like, oh, there's all these shots of the landscape and it's just one green, you know, dripping tree kind of scene after another. And my mom and I just looked at each other and said, but that's the way it is. And if you grow up, I don't know, in Manhattan or, you know, in the Bay Area out here or L.A., you you don't have any sense of that kind of layered, um, intense color, I think, um, and that it, it feels almost fake, I think, for some people, that it, it can't really be. Um, I was in a, a writing workshop and my earlier version of the book was being critiqued and a young woman said, yeah, I just, you know, you're just, the description is just too much. It just, it can't, it, it really can't be that pretty. And uh, so I loved it when my mother and I had a conversation with you just, you just don't understand. It really is that. Well, you mentioned earlier that you do teach writing to adults and kids. I think when you and I first met last year or around September, you had just started an after-school program at your daughter's school. 
How's that well, going? Um, yeah, it's been great. Uh, my oldest is in middle school. She's an eighth grader. And a wonderful English teacher has started a writing club um, her first year when Georgia was in sixth grade. And that um, teacher, I just came in and was a guest speaker that year, but then that teacher went to the high school and there wasn't anyone left at the middle school that was really wanting to take it on in the way that she had. So um, Georgia is a writer and, and uh, I really thought that was an important you know, enrichment for them. So uh, I did it last year and then I'm doing it this year as well. I have a great partner, English teacher partner this year, who's um, taking half the um, So we're kind of co-leading it. And I love it. I love, uh, I go in, my youngest is in first grade and my um, other daughter I went to a third grade, my middle daughter in third grade class. and. You know, our instincts as readers are there from the beginning. When I went to teach the grade uh, description uh, exercise, I asked them, "So why do you keep reading, and or why do you stop?" And these are these are third graders, so they're eight, nine years old. And this one boy raised his hand and he said, uh, "On the why do you keep reading?" He said, "Suspense." And I thought that's so true. And when you're reading to a group of six-year-olds and five-year-olds. Let me tell you, they show you very quickly whether or not your story is engaging, if it's fanciful, and if it's keeping their attention. And I, I think those are such, I'm really grateful for those opportunities because they remind me, you know, when you're writing, particularly first draft for me, I'm kind of writing it for me. I'm trying to figure out the story. But then everything after that, all those decisions are about you. They're about the reader. How, how is this narrative? going to affect you as a reader so that it's a it's this you know enthralling compelling experience and I, I love you I just taught a workshop for middle school to high schoolers in our district and um, I, they were asking you know this one eighth grader said how do you write an action scene without it getting so bogged down with she said this and then that happened and, and really specific questions and you we were going to do a fan fiction mashup so I said, okay, you've got The Hunger Games, Twilight, and Harry Potter, and I want you to take characters and from each of those or two of those and put them into the other story. And one of the, the um, students hadn't read any of them. And so I said, okay, well, what have you read? What about, you know, he said, well, I've read Percy Jackson, uh, Rick Riordan's you know, big blockbuster series. And I said, okay, what about Diary of the Olympic? And he said, oh, yeah. So he got to take, um, Percy, the demigod character in um, in the Percy Jackson series, and put him in Diary of a Wimpy Kid. So it was a hysterical first line. You know, when Percy woke up to his brother Roderick shaking him awake, and if you read Diary of a Wimpy Kid or seen the movies, which I've seen the movies, you know, Roderick is the obnoxious older brother. So it, it was it was great, and it reminds me about you know, it seems to be fun. Writing and storytelling is fun. When it's going well. <laughs> so, what are you up to? How, what does your writing life look like these days? Well, my writing life, I still have my full time job. I work for Bucknell University, um, which is in Pennsylvania, but I get to work out here on the Bay, in the Bay Area. So, um, I work from home, which is great, uh, and I travel a bit to go see folks. But my writing life has mainly been I'm trying to finish the draft of my new book. With seven hours to spare on December 31st, in my 2012 resolution, you know, 
very small list last year, <laughs> and that was one of them. So I got it done. It was historical. I was in the coffee shop on December 31st, and I was oh, literally like pages from finishing the draft. And they said they were going to close early. And they thought, what are you talking about? And I knew I, I couldn't go home and finish. And you know, when you're so close to finishing something like that, you just you just got to get it finished. <laughs> so I went out to my um, my car and I just finished it. I spent like an hour in my car all punched over. I have a mini Cooper, so it was like all oh my god. <laughs> But I had to finish, you know, I wanted to be able, when I popped the champagne at midnight, to know that I had that done. So, that was huge uh, for me to get that done. And what's nice is, it's a continuation of Honor a Story from um, from Los Saints. So, Ezekiel's daughter, daughter. right? this daughter, is... Um, the main character in the new book. It's set out here in the Bay Area. It's a totally different setting, but she's, it's 23 years after Lawson, and so it's been nice. I get to uh, have a scene. I was really resisting writing a scene with Zeke in it when he makes kind of his cameo appearance, and I thought, why am I taking so long to write this scene? And it was because he was in his 60s, and I wasn't really sure. You know, I wanted to see him 60-something, you know, like, uh, but it's all right. He's doing all right. Um, so that's well, the very work. fact that he makes it to his sixties. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Right. Because when we meet him in his four, early forties, he's you know it's questionable. It is questionable. Absolutely. No, he's all right. I should mention that the paperback version of The Lost Saints of Tennessee includes Amy's Great Aunt Beth's Hummingbird Cake Recipe and a new reader's guide. We're giving away a copy of the paperback, so be sure to leave a comment on southernspines.com for your chance to win. You can also enter by leaving a comment on our Facebook page. Thanks for listening.